John Constantine, a Hellblazer podcast. and welcome back before we get into the episode just want to let you know that this is the free version of the podcast and all that means is that we are way behind where i'm at in patreon so if you are loving this podcast and you need more john constantine in your life definitely go check us out at patreon.com slash planes trains and comic books and sign up for the hellblazer tier where you'll get access to the entire hellblazer library that i've recorded so far and also you'll get access to the exclusive episodes of the planes trains and comic books main podcast so if any of that sounds good to you, definitely go over to patreon.com slash planes, trains, and comic books, all one word, and sign up there. And with that out of the way, let's get into the issue. Today we are reading Hellblazer number 48, and just a little catch up on what's been going on. John has just beat Terminal on Cancer, and because of that, he's kind of had like a, a different outlook on life, and it's basically making him like stop and smell the roses. And after all the stuff he's been through in this series... Things are actually looking up, which is totally different than usual for him. He's even met an old friend named Kit, who was the partner of his friend Brendan, who died a couple issues back. And he just happened to run into her coincidentally while he was walking and taking in some fresh air. So over the last couple issues, they've been getting reacquainted. And in the last issue, they met at a bar that's like one of their local hangouts called the Northampton Arms. And there was a widower who owned the bar named Laura and she was friends with John, they knew each other, and she also knew Kit and Chaz and all these other people that John knew. And it turns out her landlord had just recently sold the land her bar was on, but she did not want to sell her bar. So that man decided to hire a person to burn down the bar, and in the process of that, she dies, and that is where we left off in the last issue. The bar had just been blown up, and it seemed like her ghost was reuniting with her husband's ghost, who had recently passed. So first things first, with issue 48, we got the cover here. We see a bar that has been in an explosion, and there's still fire coming out of the top of it. And out of the broken windows and debris, we see a ghostly couple standing in the window frames. And these are, of course, the old owners of the bar, Laura, the wife who just died, and Freddie, the husband that died previously. And we start off right where we left off on the last issue. The flames are going, the bar's on fire, except... Laura is definitely dead and she is a ghost and she's saying, my body, Freddy, it's so small and they've ruined it. And Freddy says, oh, Laura, forget it, love. It's just pain and heartache in the past. We have to think about now. And Laura replies, oh, my, oh, my God, oh, my dear God. And Freddy tries to calm her saying, Shh, love, it's easy. I was scared, too. There now, there's a girl, there's a girl. And their ghosts hug each other, and she says, Freddy, thank God. Would you look at what those bastards have done to our pub, love? Would you just bloody look? Our pub! And Freddy says, our pub. Our life. And then they both say together, our love. And as we turn the page, we get a full splash page of the bar on fire, and the flames are engulfing it. And they're on the second floor now, too. And we see the name of this issue is Love Kills. And since I forgot to say the credits at the beginning... The writer, of course, is Garth Ennis, and we have a guest penciler, Mike Hoffman, with inks by Stan Walk. So like I said, the bar is on fire, and we get the fire department pulling up, and they're rushing off the truck, 
to try to fight the fire. Then we get to John Constantine, who is asleep somewhere. We don't know, but as he's kind of waking up, he definitely has a bad taste in his mouth and he's got a headache. So he definitely has a hangover from last night. So much so that he doesn't even know where he's at. So as he kind of opens his eyes and looks around, he says, where is? And then someone's voice from the other room says, my flat, the sofa to be precise. And then we see Kit walk out and she has recently taken a shower, but she's got like a bathrobe on. And he says, Kit? And she says, yep, you're cute when you're asleep. Do you know that? And he kind of rubs his face and he says, I'm never cute. What the hell happened last night? And Kit kind of thinks for a second and she says, well, let's see. You drank yourself to a standstill, sang a rude song about a town called Mobile, and passed out in the taxi. My place was the closest, so I got the nice taxi driver to haul you up here and throw you on the sofa. You talked in your sleep for a while, something about not being out drunk by a woman, and then you started snoring, so I reached for the earplugs. There's hot water left in the shower if you want. I'll get on with breakfast. So John takes a shower, and while he's there, we get some narration where he's thinking to himself, and it says... It's been a long, long time since I got drunk and made an arsehole of myself. I've been doing most of my drinking alone recently. Maybe this is my second go at youth. Next thing you know, I'll be growing dope plants in the window box and starting a crap punk group. And then all of a sudden, he gets a whiff of what she's making for breakfast, and he thinks, that's sort of familiar, but something I haven't smelt in ages. Like, what is that? And as he finishes his shower and gets dressed, he comes out to find something called sodas being cooked. I didn't know what this was and I tried to look it up, but of course, because it's called sodas, all, most of all I could get was about drinking soda pop or Coca-Cola or something. And the only thing I really could find about a breakfast food called soda was the bread called soda bread that apparently Irish people eat for breakfast. So I'm assuming that's what it is because Kit is Irish. And as she's pulling him out of the pan, John says, Christ almighty, I haven't had those in bloody years. It must be since, oh, about, and then Kit interjects, since we all used to sit in Brendan's tower and stuff ourselves. So John gets his plate and he gets himself some of those sodas. And as he's kind of preparing it and putting some condiments on his plate, he's trying to figure out how to breach the subject of did him and Kit sleep together? So he slyly kind of just asks Kit and he says, I'm just trying to remember last night. I can't quite get it straight if you know what I mean. Must be the drink. And then Kit says, oh, I wouldn't worry, John. After all, you woke up on the sofa. So after they're done, Kit goes to work and I guess some time passes because John is now in another restaurant, so I can't imagine he's eating that soon after eating breakfast. Uh, so it must be lunchtime, and he's eating fish and chips, and he's kind of thinking about Kit and like what's going on with that, and his narration says, I go looking for trouble. Well, that's not really true. It's what I usually do when there's nothing else on the go. Find something nasty and piss it about a bit. Get my fingers burnt and burn the other bastard's arm off in return. But I can't do that forever, can I? And as he's sitting there thinking, he's playing with his food and he stabs his fork into one of the chips and the narration continues. It's like if I was this chip and I saw all my mates getting wiped out and there was a chance to get away, I should take it. I shouldn't go looking for trouble anymore. I should fall in love with a beautiful Irish woman and work tirelessly to get her into bed. And then all of a sudden someone screams John's name and it turns out it is Chaz he has come to the same diner and he just happened to see John and he says, John, Jesus, mate, did you hear? The Northampton Arms burned down last night, right to the ground, and they can't find Laura Collins, John. They think she was in it. And upon hearing this, John turns and he and Chaz run toward the Northampton Arms. And John's thinking, shit, absolute bloody shit. You can give up looking for trouble if you want, Constantine. It's going to find you anyway. 
And then we cut to the scene of the burning rubble that was the Northampton Arms. And we see there is literally nothing left, just the front facade of brick. The rest of it is completely burned to the ground and just piles of different bricks and rubble. And John and Chaz are waiting across the street, watching the policemen examine the debris. And as they watch, John says, I bet she could have escaped, Chaz. She could have, but she stayed because she loved the place. It meant too much to too many. I wish I'd listened to her. Just last night, she gave me a GNT on the house and said she was worried about Carson selling up. Your mate Dave even said Joe Hollis was talking to her. And then Chaz suggests it's possibly an insurance job, and John agrees. And then Chaz says, you want to see how the cops are getting on? And John says, yeah, for what it's worth. They're usually no help, mind you. And then Chaz looks at John questioningly and says, help? Why? Oh, I get it. Going to play detective, are you? And then judge and jury. And John kind of gives him an evil smile and says, for a complete prat, Chaz, you're a pretty smart bloke. Go home. So Chaz leaves, and then John goes over to the policeman who's guarding the scene. John pretends to be a journalist, and he says, I'm from the mail, the Daily Mail, you know. And then the cop apparently has like a blank look on his face, and he goes, sod it, I'm from the Sun. And apparently the Sun is like a tabloid or lower-ranked newspaper that maybe this cop that John thinks is dumb would read. Uh, so the cop is like, oh, the Sun, the one with the tits in that, yeah? So apparently this, this newspaper has nudity or something because this cop says that they show tits in this newspaper. And in this scene, John's not using magic at all. He's just pretending to be a journalist and this guy's believing him. So John asks the cop, is this arson then? Somebody doing a compo job? And the cop says, don't know, mate. The fireman bloke reckoned he'd need a bit more time. Tell you what though, it went up bloody quick. Creepy, isn't it? And as John stares at the wreckage, his narration says, it's creepy, all right. You don't have to be as sensitive. You could be a mindless burke and you could still feel it. Something in the air. No, not in the air, but it's right here, all right? And it feels angry and bad. And then John picks up on some other vibes and the narration says, bad that used to be good, hate that used to be love. And then without another thought, he turns around and begins to walk away from the scene. And the cop says, hey, wait, don't you want my photo for your paper then? And John thinks, prick, I think I'd better see if I can find out who did this before whatever in hell's back there finds them first. And then we cut to the office of Carson. And he was the man who was selling the property that the bar was on, and the guy that also hired Joe Hollis to burn it down. And he is talking to Quincy, who was supposed to be the developer for the new building that's going to be built now that it's burnt down. And Quincy is asking how it went that night, specifically if there's any insurance investigating going on. And Carson says, they'll be there tomorrow, I think. Look. I wouldn't worry. I drove past the place on my way here and it's burnt right to the ground. You'll never find any evidence in that lot, believe me. And then Carson leans back very nonchalantly and says, mind you, the old woman being in the place will slow things down a bit. And this is a shock to Quincy because he says, what? She's dead? She was in there? For Christ's sake, Carson, that's murder. And then Carson kind of sits up fast and looks at Quincy and says, remember where you are, son. Keep your voice down, huh? I've asked Joe Hollis to join us here this evening just to sort out a few details. I thought you ought to meet Joe, just to keep you from thinking any silly thoughts about backing out when the going gets tough. And don't forget, I've still got the deeds, Quincy, and Joe's quite capable of serving me your bollocks to go with them. Then we cut to a man who we haven't seen before. He's walking down the street, and we get some narration that says, ever since lunchtime, Lenny Fisher's been certain that someone's following him. He keeps catching glimpses out of the corner of his eye of something. Well, he just isn't sure. You have to keep your eyes open when you're in Lenny's business. He's one of those people who knows things. He's never actually involved in anything himself, but he knows who is. And whoever you are, 
police or criminal, filth or scum. If you want to know what Lenny knows, bung him a few quid and he'll tell all. Of course, this tends to make Lenny somewhat unpopular in certain quarters. And so, to avoid the sudden explosive removal of his kneecaps, Lenny is a very careful man. But just right now, he's getting worried. So as Lenny's walking, we kind of see him look to the left and look to the right, and then he glances to the side with his eyes, but he's not really seeing anything, so he just says, screw this, oi, taxi! And the taxi pulls over, and as he gets in, he kind of closes his eyes as he sits down and leans back, and he says, that's better. And then someone says, hello, Lenny. And Lenny sits up all startled, and we see that the person who said that is in fact John Constantine. And apparently Lenny knows who John is because he yells out John's name, and John says, how you doing, Lenny? And Lenny says, shit, how the bloody hell did you get in here? And John doesn't even answer that, he just continues, Northampton Arms got burnt down last night, Lenny. I hear Joe Hollis might be the man. Don't worry about the driver, by the way, he can't hear us. And Lenny says, what do you mean he can't hear us? And what the frig are you talking to me for if you know who did it? And John turns to him very seriously and says, Because I'm not going face to face with a mad figure like Hollis, am I? What I need to know is the name of his arsehole dog body so as I can find myself a weak link. Any ideas? And Lenny looks at him and says, Come on, mate, that's dangerous ground. And John says, Don't give me that bollocks, you little shit. You're on sodding lethal ground right here and now, son, because you're sharing that ground with me. You want to try talking your way off it? And then we cut to John waiting outside of some buildings and we get some narration that says, Lenny talked. He gave me a couple of names, Del Carter and Tony McKay and Carter's address to boot. I was going to get him to drop me off here in the cab, but halfway through the conversation, he shat himself. So I decided to take the air and I walked. And then we cut inside the buildings and of course it's apartments like the narration said. This is where Carter lives. So we see Carter sitting on the couch with another man who was also there the night of the attacks. And in the last issue, I definitely described this guy, Carter. Uh, he was the skinhead that had a swastika tattooed on the side of his head. And Carter and the guy with him are definitely waiting this out. They are trying to lay low, not be seen, because they just committed arson and murder as well. But they're also not the smartest people, so they are debating whether they should go to the bar because nothing's on the TV. But Carter decides against it, saying, Nah, I mean, I would, but Hollis told us to stay low for a while. It makes sense, really, with the old bag getting caught in the fire. And then his friend says, Yeah, I could have sworn I dragged her a good 20 yards out back, but there you are, shit. Did you see the bollocking Hollis gave Stevie? What a psycho. And Carter says, Yeah, but the pay's well. Ah. And then he grabs his head like he's getting a headache or something, and then his eyes shoot open as his friend says, You all right, Carter? Carter, what's the matter? And then Carter just kind of looks at him blankly, and then stands up and begins to walk. And he goes straight into the bathroom as his friend follows, saying, Come on, Carter, anyone home? Snap out of it, mate. What are you doing behind the bug? And Carter goes over to the toilet, and he kneels down to get something behind the toilet. And then when he comes up, we see it is a double-barreled, sawed-off shotgun, like the old-school side-by-side ones. And then Carter points it at his friend, and his friend says, Jesus, wise up, mate. Don't piss about with that thing, for God's sake. Please, Carter, it's loaded. Stop it, Carter. And then we get a panel of the shotgun being shoved into this guy's mouth. And we get the voice of Carter saying, it's it's not me, Tony. It's not me. And then we get to John outside who's just smoking. And all of a sudden he hears a shotgun blast. And he runs inside and the narration says, shotgun if I'm any judge. Both barrels. And as he runs in, he says, oh, Christ. As he sees the scene in the restroom, 
Carter has the shotgun in his hand still, and his friend Tony is dead. His head is blown open in the back, and he's leaning against the wall. And then we see Carter go over to the mirror and break it. He's still in his trance, and he grabs a shard of glass, and while he stares blankly, he shoves it in his neck and begins to go across very slowly. And Constantine is watching horrified at this whole thing. And then we cut to some time after, where Constantine is, I'm assuming, in his house. We don't really see the location. But he's drinking and he's sitting on a bed and the narration says he just kept pushing more and more blood was coming out pissing all over the place and he pushed and pushed until it sliced into his brain and i heard a click when it reached the inside of his skull and whatever that was of the ruins this morning that's what did it you could feel it in the room christ it's strong i shouldn't be here i should be out there trying to work out what it is and what it's doing but but he twitched a couple times and fell down and gurgled, and everything came out of his mouth and nose and ears. And as John's sitting there trying to forget about the trauma he just witnessed, all of a sudden someone kicks open the door and yells, Constantine! And John sits up super surprised and says, what the fuck? And the man continues yelling at him saying, you're Constantine, you killed Tony and Dell, you bastard, you dirty friggin' shit! And John tries to reason with him saying, Christ, not me, mate, I've only just found them myself! Now let's just calm down and talk. But the man doesn't listen and keeps coming at Constantine and he says, Lenny Fisher told me you wanted them. It was you. I saw them, Constantine. How in bloody hell do you think you could do that, you sick bastard? And as the man comes at John, John thinks, oh Jesus, here we go. So he takes the bottle he was drinking and he grabs it by the stem end and he shatters the butt on the wall. So now he's got a weapon at least. And then as the guy comes at him, John swipes at him with a broken bottle, but of course he misses because he's a bad fighter, and he ends up getting punched in the face, and now John's on the ground and we see blood pouring out of his mouth, and his narration says, you never were any good at this, were you, Constantine? And then the man comes up to him and says, not such a pretty face now, arsehole. And if John's intimidated, he's not showing it. I mean, he probably is, and he's probably just putting on a face because he says, listen, son, if I had a face like yours, I'd start smoking tampons. And with that, the man begins to punch him again in the stomach and knocks the wind out of John. And then all of a sudden, Kit comes in the doorway and sees John and says, Frick's sake, John. And the man sees her, and John is instantly worried for Kit, and he says, Kit, get away. He'll kill you. And the man that was attacking John does turn, and he looks at her, and he says, Too bloody right. And then he walks towards her. And as he does this, she says, Oh, I? And then as he goes for her, she reaches down very quickly and grabs him by the balls and says, Can I take your bag, sir? And then she begins to squeeze. And as she does, she says, Think you're the queer fella, do you? You like hitting wee girls? Well, you listen to me, lad. You make one wrong move, and I'll tear your freaking balls off. And then she squeezes even harder, and he gives out a yell. And then John, who's recovering, says, Right, dickhead. Where's Hollis? I'm not going to kill him, and I didn't kill the others, okay? Where is he? And the man who's getting his balls squeezed is saying, Oh, he's, he's at Quincy's office. Carson's using him to lean on Quincy, I think. Please let me go. And then we cut to a cab. and We get some narration that says, The driver looks a bit edgy when Kit pushes the jerk into his taxi with her hands on his bollocks. And even more edgy when we push him out into heavy traffic. But the tenor I flash him soon has him looking the other way. This Quincy bloke's office is across the river. Things are starting to add up, too. Quincy's buying the pub site and Carson's had the place burnt to save demo cost. Quincy must be getting cold feet. And as they pull up to the building, Kit says, that big bastard will know where you live now, John. And John says, ah, I was gonna move anyway. Most of my gear is still in Chaz's place. Look, love, when we get here, I want you to wait outside, right? 
you're well out of your depth. And then she looks at him unconvinced and says, I, you were really doing well on your own back there, weren't you? And John kind of turns to her like, this is serious. And he's not joking. And he says, this won't be a punch up, love. This will be the bad shit. Then we cut to the inside of Quincy's office where Carson is introducing Joe Hollis to Quincy in order to intimidate him. So Carson tells Hollis, Mr. Quincy's a bit worried about Miss Collins dying in the fire, Joe. He's a bit nervous about staying in business with me. Why don't you tell him what happened to Mickey Firth when he backed out of the Riverside deal? And then Hollis says, I threw him in the bath with an electric heater, and I threw his whore on top of him. And his daughters. They were twins, nine years old. They smelled like pig shit. And this is working. Quincy is very, very scared, so much so that as he glances over to Carson as Hollis is telling the story, he begins to cry, and as Joe Hollis finishes his story, Quincy begins to sob into his hands. And then Carson says, so I'm sure you get the picture. And as Carson says that, all of a sudden, Joe Hollis gets very rigid and he snaps straight up and he grabs his head and he says, get out, you whore, and take your friggin' husband with you. Get out of me. And then Joe's eyes go blank and he begins to yell, ah, and as he does, he begins to walk towards Carson and Carson doesn't really know what's going on. He just sees a giant Joe Hollis walk towards him like Frankenstein. And he says, oh, fuck, Hollis, what are you doing? Jesus. And then Hollis pushes Carson against a wall and holds him there with one arm. And then he proceeds to take his other hand and force it into the rib cage of Carson. And I mean, like his hand is going through the suit Carson is wearing and squeezing into the rib cage. And as he grabs that, we see blood pouring out. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going until he gets to the intestines and then he begins to rip everything out as Carson is still alive. And then Joe takes the intestines and begins to shove them in his mouth and eat them. And they don't really show Carson in this scene, but I'm assuming he's either passed out or he has to horrifically watch Hollis eat his intestines. And they don't fully explain this, but I guess Joe must have choked on the intestines because he was shoving so much of it in his mouth. So he falls to the ground, passed out, probably dead choking. And that is the moment that John runs in. <laughs> so he sees this scene and he just says, oh, Jesus. And then we get narration that says, it's here. I know it is. I can feel it. Just like the ruins this morning. Just like the butchery at Carter's place. I can feel the passion, the intense, destructive hatred of something that feels cheated. Something that was so full of love, but now. And then John kind of looks around for a second and he says, Laura, Laura. And then a ghostly voice says, John. And then another voice says, what? Who? Laura, leave it. One more to go. And then Laura says, wait, Freddie, John, John Constantine. And then John says, that's me, Laura. Care to tell me what you're up to? And Laura says, hurt me, John. Killed me. And Freddie says, hurt Laura so badly. Burned our pub. Hurt our love. Revenge. Because they wouldn't let us love. All we wanted, all we wanted was our love. And John replies, look, this has to end. I'm not talking about right or wrong or any of that bullshit, but you've got to stop this. It's pointless. And Freddie says, hurt our love. Still this one. And John looks over at Quincy and says, uh-huh. You've got the ones who hurt you, okay? But no more. You've, they've turned your love into hate. Carry on with this and there will be no going back, folks. And you won't like where you'll end up, believe me. And Laura says, don't like hate. Don't like hurting. And Freddie says, but what else? What other way? And John points at Quincy and says, look, this little bastard here's got money, right? Lots of money. He's more use alive than dead. There could be a new Northampton Arms where the old one was. 
People could drink and laugh and love all night, just like in the first pub. And if you want, you could stay and look after it, just like always. And Laura says, show us then. And John thinks, thank Christ. And then he grabs Quincy by the lapels and says, right, arsehole. First, we're going to clean all this shit out of your office so the cleaners don't tip off the filth. And then you, me, and the checkbook are going to go have a little chat. And then John pulls him in even closer and says, and if you end up a few cards short of the full deck in the process, that's your tough shit. And then we cut to John leaving the building and we see him light up a cigarette and look at the time. And as he does, we see Kit come out of the shadows and he kind of smiles at her and she looks at him and smiles as well. And then they begin to walk away together. And over those panels, we get Laura and Freddie talking. So Laura says, Freddie, all right? And Freddie answers, fine, Laura, best way. Love now, not hate. And Laura says, love better. No good at hate, good at love, our love. And Freddie says, our love. Time to rest, Laura. Sleep now, Laura, sleep. And Laura says, love rests, sleep and love. And from their little back and forth there, because it's over the panels of John and Kit, it kind of makes it seem like there's love going on between them as well. And that is the end of the issue. So if you guys have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can email me at plainstrains and comic books, all one word at gmail.com. And we will see you on the next one.